morning. Good morning. Thank you, Corner family, for leading us in worship. That was fantastic. And thank you, Forbes family, for leading us, ushering us into this first week of Advent where we look forward to and anticipate a celebration and, uh, and ponder the implications of the incarnation of Christ, of God walking among us. <laughs> uh, for those of you online, welcome. And everybody here, this is, this is uh, Dylan. It's been a while since he's been up here. He's quite a bit larger and uh, quite a bit more composed. Uh, so, yeah, he's going to help me out with announcements. All right, Dylan, what do we got first? That's right. Next week is Baptism Sunday. We're having a lot of people coming up to be baptized. And for those of you who are wanting to come in, please register. Um, once we hit 30% capacity in here, we are going to be moving the rest of you into the fellowship hall where there will be a live stream so you can still kind of be here and present to watch all the baptism of your family and friends. December 8th, we have the Family Matters Business Meeting. So if you're a member, there will be things for you to know, things to vote on. Um, there should be a little pamphlet inside your bulletin for you to look at with details on that. And... Uh, yeah, if, uh, you might want to check if you are a member. All it takes is that you get baptized here and you're above 16. So many of you who are getting baptized next week, you might be becoming members. We don't really ask you if you want to be a member. We just make you one. So if you're not sure, <laughs> call the office and make sure you know, because you might have the power to vote and not realize it. All right. And that's it. Allow me to pray for the rest of our service, and we'll get moving. God, we... Uh, how we thank you um, for this family that we have here, for the many families, a part of our church, who, who, who are a part of what's going on here, God. And it's just one big family of families, and we thank you for that. God, we uh, pray as we continue on in the service, God, that we would hear from you. Um, God, that you would transform our minds and our hearts. And God, during this season of Advent, that we would ponder what it means that you walked among us, that you came and you were born humbly. humbly. Um, so God, allow us to sit with that. Allow us to ponder these next few weeks of Advent as we consider what it means. God, we thank you for these things, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Happiness with worship. Did you enjoy that this morning? You want to say thank you to them for coming and helping us with worship? Thank you so much. I was thinking uh, that if you... Uh, just get yourself a drummer, and unless you want to take Rocky with you, you could go on the road, right? I even thought of a name. Are you, are you ready? It's a good name. You could call yourself the Cornerstone Family. Huh? Not bad. Not bad. All right. Think about it. No, that was awesome. Pastor Mark is on vacation uh, this week, and uh, so he's afforded me the opportunity to bring the word of God to you this morning, which I'm always grateful for. If you take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be continuing in this portion of Scripture. In fact, I'm going to be finishing off the book for him. Aren't I a nice guy just doing that for him, just finishing off the book? And so we got, we got a couple of really exciting weeks to come. We have a baptism coming up, and so that's going to uh, be the bulk of the service. And uh, we just have a lot of things in the next several weeks leading up to Christmas. And so this is a good timing 
for us as we enter into Advent to finish up this book. Let me pray as we begin this morning. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come into your presence and listen to your word today. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us, that you want us to hear what you have to say, that you want us to uh, respond accordingly. And so speak to us, Lord, today by your spirit. May our hearts and our minds be open to what you have to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a parent, maybe you can identify with these words uh, that were written by uh, Charles Swindoll in his book, Come Before Winter, which is quite old now, but still very relevant. I would encourage you to get a copy of it. It's a wonderful little book. Listen to the words that he writes. Someday when the kids are grown, things are going to be a lot different. The garage won't be full of bikes, electric train tracks on plywood, sawhorses surrounded by chunks of two-by-fours, nails, a hammer and saw, and unfinished experimental projects. I will be able to park both cars neatly in just the right places and never again stumble over skateboards, piles of papers, save for the local school drive. Someday when the kids are grown, the kitchen will be incredibly neat. The sink will be free of sticky dishes. The garbage disposal won't be get chucked, choked on rubber bands or paper cups. The refrigerator won't be clogged with nine bottles of milk. And we won't lose the tops of jelly jars, ketchup bottles, or the mustard. Someday when the kids are grown, my lovely life will, wife will actually have the time to get dressed leisurely. A long, hot bath without three panicked interruptions. Time to do her nails, even toenails if she would like, without answering a dozen questions and reviewing spelling words. Someday when the kids are grown, the instruments called the telephone will actually be available. It won't look like it's growing from a teenager's ear. It will simply hang there, silently and amazingly available. And it will be free of lipstick, human saliva, mayonnaise, corn chip crumbs. Someday, when the kids are grown, I'll be able to see through the car windows. Fingerprints, tongue licks, sneaker footprints, dog tracks will be conspicuous by their absence. The back seat won't be a disaster area. We won't sit on jacks or crayons anymore. Do they even make jacks still? The tank will always, the tank will not always be somewhere between empty and fumes. And glory to God, I won't have to clean up dog messes another time. Some of you can relate to that, I'm sure. And in thinking those things, we think, ah, we'll be content. Today we're talking about contentment. For those of us who once upon a time thought those things, but then now we're on the other side of that, we look back and we think, oh, how much we miss it all, right? The dictionary defines the word content as happy enough with what one has or is, not desiring something more or different, satisfied, Wow, discontentedness in our society, I think, is at epic proportions, don't you? And maybe I'm speaking to somebody today who is struggling with discontentment. I think all of us have struggled with that at times. 
Maybe I'm speaking to somebody today here in the auditorium or those of you online who are struggling maybe with your job and discontented that you haven't gotten that promotion soon enough. Or, or maybe I'm talking about somebody today who sees contentment as something between birth and kindergarten, between retirement and the grave. Maybe I'm speaking to some couples today who are discontent that maybe you're desiring a bigger house or, or you want more, more room to, to wander, a better location. Maybe I'm speaking to a student today who is discontent over your transportation situation or your family. I'm convinced that the seed of discontent is sown in the hearts of children at birth, and then it just grows with every new situation. I mean, I think you could relate to what I'm talking about. It's, it's the first time you take your, your children shopping and, well, don't dare take them to Walmart and get those Wrangler jeans. You know, we want to go down the, the other store, the expensive store, and get those name brand jeans. And nothing else will satisfy me. That, and then that discontentment simply grows with every new situation. I'm also convinced that one of the critical needs in the body of Christ is contentment. And we live in neighborhoods, do we not, filled with people in their eager pursuit of ambition who have grown tired and discontented. And, and, and I'm, I'm afraid, I'm, I'm, I fear that maybe we are becoming a, a nation of discontented uh, marionettes dangling from the strings of the di- dictatorial puppeteer of covetousness. Paul told us in 1 Timothy that godliness is a means of great contentment, a great gain when accompanied by contentment. And one of the amazing statements that the Apostle Paul makes here in our passage today is in chapter 4 and verse 11 when he says, I am content. Today we're going to learn the secret for contentment. Today, I want to take you into the operating room of God where, where he wants to do some work on our hearts. And, and today, I, I think it would be easy for us to, to think to ourselves, I hope that so-and-so hears this message, but, but today, I hope that, that we'll just focus everything and everyone else out and that we will think about ourselves and what God has to say to us personally today, because I know that God has spoken to my heart about this topic today. Interwoven in our passage today are, are three secrets that I think will help us with contentment in our lives. The first secret is in learning how to control our desires how to discipline our desires. I know that almost sounds out of context, but follow along with me as we read this first portion of scripture, beginning in verse 10 to 13. Paul writes, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I want you to notice in verse 11 that Paul did not say that he was content because it was simply a great part of his character. I'm just that kind of a guy, you know, I'm just a contented guy. That's not what he said. And Paul did not say that he was content simply because he had such great discipline over himself. Oh, if I could just discipline myself better than I'm more content. That's not what he said. Not, or, or even that he was so spiritual. I have, I have risen in my spiritual life to the point where I just am content. That's not what he said. But rather he says that I have, listen, learned to be content. I've learned to be content. You know, in a sense, Paul was no different than you and I. He was born of a mother with a sin nature just like you and I. He wasn't born a perfect man. He wasn't born with a spirit of contentment. In fact, one time he admits back in Romans chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what I want to do, but the evil I do do, I I do not want is what I keep on doing. That's a tongue twister, isn't it? Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And then he finishes off the passage in verse 24 by saying, wretched man that I am. He was no different than you and I. Same sin nature, same struggles, same temptations in life. It wasn't that Paul was naturally disciplined any more than you and I are. He came out of the womb, same sin nature. He screamed to the top of his lung, just like every baby does and says, feed me, change my diaper, let me out of this crib, pay attention to me, buy me more toys, let me do what I want to do, even if I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) He was just like you and me. And that's okay for a baby to act that way. In fact, we kind of expect them to act that way. But it becomes an issue when a person grows up and continues to act that same way as though the world owes them something. And we have a whole lot of people in our society who have that kind of an attitude today, do we not? But Paul said, I learned to be content in whatever situation I find myself in. That word learn, by the way, means to learn by practice or to create a habit. Now, when I was in high school, I took a particular class called typing class, typing 101. I don't even know if they offer that class in school anymore. I kind of get the feeling that when babies are born in these days, they're handed laptop and the doctor says, here, type your name, right? Here, let me show you how to surf the internet. (laughs) So I don't even know if they offer typing 101 anymore, but in my day, we took a typing class. And uh, I learned how to type on a manual typewriter, something like this one, believe it or not. My dad had an old Underwood about like this one. It was the kind that you had to actually push the keys in order to move an arm that would strike a ribbon that had ink on it, that put, put ink on the paper. And if you made a mistake, there was no backspacing. 
right? Eventually, they came out with these little white strips that you could type over the top of it. But boy, not in my day. There was no backspace. There was no autocorrect. There was no do-over. You had to take the paper out, put a new piece of paper in, and start all over again. And on this particular typewriter, you had to have fairly strong fingers in order to depress the keys and in order to build up any kind of a speed to type. And I would sit at home and I would practice and I thought to myself, I will never, ever learn how to type. It was so, I mean, the keys are not even in alphabetical order. Have you noticed that? The A and the B are not together. P and Q are on opposite ends of the keyboard. How in the world are you supposed to learn that? But I sat there and I practiced and I typed the alphabet, A, B, C, with different fingers, not just with one finger, (laughs) but with different fingers. And I thought I would never get it, but then I started spelling words one letter at a time. And then I started typing sentences, my name is Mark. And eventually I began to build up speed and eventually I could even type without looking at the keyboard. You know what it took? Practice. I had to practice to learn a skill. In the same way, the Apostle Paul, he says, I learned, I practiced. We don't learn contentment just by wishing that we were content anymore that I could learn the typewriter by wishing that I could type. We don't learn contentment just by thinking that it's a nice idea that if I could be content someday, but it starts by disciplining ourselves to be content. It comes through hours and years of discipline and practice. I found it interesting that the word learned was used in the Greek mystery religions to describe a person who had worked through the various lower degrees of knowledge until finally they reached the full possession of the mystery itself. And Paul takes that analogy and he says, look, I've worked my way through the progressive detachment from the things of this world, both in comforts and discomforts, and I've gained a sense freedom from those things. I'm no longer mastered by my circumstances. Now that's a true mark of spirituality and maturity. I'm afraid that a lot of us are more like the children of Israel when they were wandering through the wilderness and they constantly complained about what they did not have. They wondered whether God was them. Why don't you provide that? How come we don't have this? We don't have enough eat. Oh, to meet. Oh, if we would have just been back in the, they just complained and grumbled. We'll say things like, oh, if God were with me, I wouldn't be in this kind of a circumstances. Oh, God, just let me out of this and I'll just trust you. John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money does it take to satisfy a man? And he, he responded a little more than what he has. So true, isn't it? Paul learned to discipline his desires bit by bit, letter by letter, until he was content. But I have to say that he didn't do that in his own strength. I don't want you to get the idea that we can just say, I'm going to discipline myself into contentment. That's not what he did. 
But rather, he says, notice in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, that's the context of that verse. We use that verse for all kinds of other things, and I suppose there's a secondary application to that in many different ways. But the context of that verse is learning contentment. And he says, the only way that I was able to learn this sense of contentment is that I subjected myself myself in a place where the power of God could work through me. Notice the words. He says, I can do. That means, that literally means strong and robust. It's the power to do an extraordinary deed. He's talking about the power that is beyond his own power. He didn't say, I did this, but he says, I can do what? Through That's a preposition referring to a fixed position. In other words, in whatever state he found himself, he says, in my present state, right here in this prison. And he says that his strength to be content was through him who strengthens me. That's a causative verb that means to pour power into. In other words, Paul positioned himself in life in such a way that he allowed the Lord to pour his power into him, which in turn strengthened him to be content. How are we doing in that? How are we doing with contentment in our lives? Have you learned to discipline your desires in the power of God to be content? Or are you constantly wishing for more or something better or something different? You see, when we submit ourselves to the Lord, he gives us the power, his power to flow through and to give this contentment. The second lesson in contentment has to do with generosity. I know that almost sounds out of context or a contradiction, but just let me read this for you and follow with me beginning in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And the Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The Philippians loved Paul. You see, Paul was the one who had brought them into a relationship, into faith, into an understanding of their need for Christ. They had received Christ because of Paul's witness. For a short time after Paul left Philippi, uh, Paul ministered uh, in, in Thessalonica. The Philippians sort of lost track of where he was, but, but they tracked him down in Thessalonica and they discovered that he had some financial needs. And so the church of Philippi, they, they gathered an offering and they sent it to Thessalonica to care for his needs. From Thessalonica, Paul went to Berea and then to Athens. And for a little while, uh, the Philippians kind of lost track of him, but they were still concerned about him and they they wanted to kind of keep tabs on him. And somehow they found out that he was in prison in Rome. And so again, they took a collection up and they sent it with Epaphroditus to care for his needs there in that prison. And here's the point that I'm trying to make this morning. 
Generosity is an important element of the Christian life that brings contentment with it. We might, we, we ought to be affected by the needs of other people. You see, the Philippian church wasn't a wealthy church. In fact, uh, Paul tells us about the Philippian church in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. This is what he wrote. A very descriptive story. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now listen, for in severe test of affliction, <clears throat> their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Wow, it was through extreme poverty. It was through, through affliction that they joyfully gave to Paul. And it's through their generosity that, that they found contentment in providing for Paul, in helping him. And, and Paul makes two points in all of this. In verse 18, in Philippians 4, he, he says, the latter part of verse 18, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. First of all, our generosity is pointed towards God. This is a picture of, by the way, the burnt offering that was, that was brought before God in the Old Testament. And he's saying that when we generously sacrifice our, our, ourselves and, and what we have to meet the needs of others, what we're really doing is that we're sacrificing to God. Isn't that a great picture? When you give to others, you're really giving to God. God notices that. The second point is that our generosity is rewarded by God. In verse 17, Paul said, not that I seek the gift. That wasn't the intention at all. But in fact, he was content in whatever circumstance he found himself in. But he said in verse 17, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. These Greek words are almost like ones we would hear from a financial institution. They involve credit and compounded interest. And Paul is saying that when we share what God has entrusted to us, we're actually entering into a partnership with God himself. And God pays interest compounded daily for our investment. Now, wait a minute. I'm not talking a prosperity gospel here. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we're going to get back dollar for dollar what we give to God. But I'm saying that when we take the opportunity to give generously, God notices and we're filling our purses in heaven with rewards which never grow old and which will never fail. And we find contentment in that. The third lesson in contentment <clears throat> has to do with God's grace. And I love this point. Paul began this letter by addressing the saints and commending them to the Lord. And he does the same in the end. Look at verses 21 to 23. Almost verses we tend to skip over that we don't pay much attention to, but there's great significance here. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And that's an interesting phrase because Caesar's household, right? He was, he was imprisoned by Caesar's household, and, and he had led a lot of them to the Lord. And now he's saying, Caesar's household, your brothers greet you. 
Now, I threw that in free. No, no charge for that one. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord, Jesus Christ, be with your spirit. You see, God's grace is always enough. God's grace is enough because it's the remedy for every human need. Jesus' grace reveals all of his glory, all of his power, all of his helpfulness, all of his riches, and he makes that available to you and me, his children. The greatest power of God is not found in signs and wonders or even in the power of nature, but it's found in the power of Jesus Christ living within the human soul. This is the power of God that meets every need. The simplicity of this final prayer is such a fitting conclusion to this letter. You see, Paul wanted nothing more and nothing less for himself and for us and those who is writing to than for us to experience a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm sure you've heard the name Horatio Spafford, an attorney who lived in Chicago at the turn of the century who learned this lesson well, that Jesus is enough. As you may or may not know, he was a dynamic Christian who was an attorney living in Chicago and was influential in founding the Moody Bible Institute, the institute that I graduated from. During the great Chicago fire of 1871, and no, I did not live there in 1871, but he lost his business. Almost the whole city burned down, as you know the story. And while he was rebuilding, he sent his wife and his children to England On their way across the Atlantic, their vessel was struck by another vessel and sunk. And Mrs. Spafford, although she watched her four children drown, she herself was saved by hanging on to some floating debris in the ocean. Apparently she was rescued, and when she was recovering in a hospital in Wales, she wrote a telegraph to her husband, these two words, saved alone. Of course, he took the first ship that he could find across the Atlantic to join his wife in Wales. And as they're sailing past the spot where the tragedy had happened when where he lost his children, he was walking up and down the deck, contemplating all that had happened. And it was there that he was moved to write that wonderful song that we sing today, It Is Well With My Soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. And that's the message that Paul wants us to learn today. That whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, no matter the tragedy or the happiness, we can say, it is well with my soul. That's the key to contentment. The secret that enables us to rest. And I wonder if you know his rest today through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can find this contentment and this peace and this rest. 
You might be striving today for peace and you may be striving for contentment and and rest in your own energy. But I want to tell you today that you will never find it permanently until you find this in the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And you can know his contentment. And you can know his peace simply by inviting Jesus to forgive you of all of your sins and by telling him that you want him to be the Lord and the master of your life, the ruler in your heart. And he'll come in by, your, by his spirit and he will fill you with this contentment that Paul knew about as he released his life to him. You could do that today as we bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for such a powerful portion of scripture that reminds us that our only peace, our only contentment is found in Jesus Christ. For Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That was because he had this personal relationship with Christ. And I pray, Lord, that there's somebody listening today who does not have this relationship with Christ, that they will, they will make that step today. They will take that, make that decision today. And you could say a little prayer like this, Lord Jesus, I, I confess that I am a sinner and that I have rebelled against you. I accept your free gift of eternal life through Jesus who died on a cross for me, paid the penalty that I deserve and rose from the dead. And is alive today offering me this free gift. I receive it to myself. Come into my heart. Make me your child. I want you to be the Lord and the king of my life. And I pray, Lord, if there is somebody who said that prayer today, that they will find that contentment in you. That they will find peace. They will know you as their savior. And find strength to do what they are not able to do in and of themselves. We thank you for doing this in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you made that kind of a decision today, I would encourage you to uh, get in touch with us. Let us know. We'd like to encourage you and to help you in your walk with the Lord.